What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon. Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may know Jackson Pollock, the painter famous for his iconic drip paintings. But what do you know about his wife, artist Lee Krasner? On Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting, just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here at Our American Stories. Today, the History Guy remembers a truly extraordinary Civil War heroine, Mary Edwards Walker. She was the only woman in United States history to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Here's the history guy. The Medal of Honor, the United States' highest award for valor, was established by the United States Army in 1862 to recognize those soldiers who distinguished themselves by gallantry and intrepidity in combat with an enemy of the United States. Since that time, 3,459 Medals of Honor have been awarded, and only one has gone to a woman, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. And hers is a story worth remembering. Mary Edwards Walker was born in 1832 in upstate New York, the youngest of seven children. Her parents were farmers and free thinkers. The free thought movement was a movement that challenged authority and tradition and thought that truth should be derived from logic and reason. And it was that upbringing that not only allowed her to escape traditional gender roles of her time, but to develop a fierce sense of independence and justice. Mary's parents were determined to give all of their children a good education, and she studied at Valley Seminary in Fulton, New York. She always had an interest in physiology and anatomy, and so she worked as a teacher in order to earn enough money to be able to attend medical school, graduating with honors from Syracuse Medical College in 1855, the only woman in her class. She struggled, though, to build a successful practice, as female doctors were very rare in that time and often not trusted. 
When the war started, she volunteered with the Union Army, seeking a commission as a field surgeon. But the Union Army didn't hire female surgeons, and so she was only allowed to serve as a nurse, which is how she served after the Battle of First Bull Run. She then started volunteering her services as a field surgeon and treated soldiers after the battles of Fredericksburg and Chickamauga. But finally, in 1863, she was hired as a contracting acting assistant surgeon, the first female surgeon in the Union Army, with the pay of a lieutenant, although she was still a civilian. She didn't much care about rules or the enemy lines. She would go where she needed to go to treat people, and she would frequently travel behind enemy lines to treat civilians in need, say to deliver a baby or treat someone that was sick. And that's what she was doing in April of 1864 when she was captured and arrested by the Confederate Army as a spy. She was held as a prisoner of war until August of that year when she was finally exchanged. She continued in federal service and was made acting assistant surgeon to Ohio's 52nd Infantry Regiment. She also managed a hospital for female prisoners and later managed an orphanage. She was recommended for the Medal of Honor by General William Tecumseh Sherman and General George Henry Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. There's no record of the original nomination, but when the medal was awarded by President Andrew Johnson in 1865, it commended her because she dedicated herself with patriotic zeal to the sick and wounded soldiers, both in the field and in the hospital, to the detriment of her own health. She always said that she got the award because she was the only doctor brave enough to go behind enemy lines to treat people. Throughout her life, she showed the independent thought of her upbringing, and one of her great causes was dress reform. She believed that women's fashion of the day was injurious to health. She complained that corsets were restricting, and that large skirts with multiple petticoats were not only uncomfortable and restricting, but they also collected dust and dirt. She wrote two books on the subject of dress reform, complaining that women's fashion was not just dangerous to the health, but also expensive. She would often dress in a mid-length skirt and men's trousers, which she felt was much more practical and protected the woman's modesty. But later in life, she would often give speeches in full men's formal dress attire. She said, I don't wear men's clothes, I wear my own clothes. While she was passionate about that cause, it was one of many. She was also part of the temperance movement. She was an abolitionist, and she was a suffragette, and she testified before Congress several times on the issue of women's suffrage. In 1917, the Army did a review of their Medal of Honor roles and removed 911 names, including Mary Edwards Walker. The reason they revoked her medal was that she was actually a civilian at the time and that her deeds were not in combat. But her medal was returned posthumously by Jimmy Carter in 1977. In her life, she had so many causes. For example, during the war, she realized that there were lots of women who were coming to Washington, D.C. to visit injured soldiers, brothers or husbands. And so she started a society to help women who were visiting the capital find a safe place to stay and to find their loved ones in all the many area hospitals. And after the war, she passionately advocated to provide pensions to Civil War nurses and argued that they should be given the right to vote in gratitude for their service. All her life, she had to struggle to make a living. She was never able to establish a successful medical practice because, sadly, in her time, people just did not trust female physicians. She finally passed away on the family farm in 1919 at the age of 86. Even in her time, she was more known for her eccentricities than her accomplishments, and she's largely forgotten today. And that is just wrong because her accomplishments were astounding, especially with what she had to face in her day. And darn it, the only female winner of the Medal of Honor deserves to be remembered. And a special thanks to Greg, and a special thanks to the history guy, and darn it, he does deserve to be remembered. We're talking about Mary Edwards Walker, 3,473 Medal of Honor recipients. She's the only woman. And by the way, in large measure, she believes she got that honor by being the only doctor brave enough to go behind enemy lines to treat soldiers. That she would not be able to get a medical practice going in this country. Well, that tells you a lot about how far we've come. People just didn't trust the idea of going to see a woman and thinking they'd get good treatment. The story of Mary Edwards Walker, here on Our American Story.
Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past, know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. Turn to our American stories. And up next, a story from one of our regular contributors, Richard Munez. Rich is a listener out in Colorado, and his story today is entitled Midnight at the Live Fire Exercise. Here's Rich with the story. ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. The deadline has come and gone. The Iraqis are living in what President Bush calls borrowed time. It is no longer whether the war will start, but when. In 1991, we had a little thing called the Gulf War, and in it we sent armored divisions, infantry divisions, into Iraq, and I'll be honest with you, we cleaned their clock. I mean, it looked a little bit like War of the Worlds, only we were the Martians. Now, one of the things that happened here is we we definitely had the superior tank. I mean, the M1 tank, fantastic piece of hardware. The other thing we had going for us, we had better training. Now, granted, they had some actual combat experience, but we had trained to a razor's edge. Where did we do this training? At a little place called National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California, out in the middle of nowhere in the Mojave Desert. Now, the first time I ever went out there, it was about 1988. What had happened was, see, I was working military police investigations at the time. Now, that's exactly what it sounds like I was doing. I was a detective. You know, I put on a suit, put on a tie, and I went out there and I played detective. Well, in the FM manuals, there's always need for an MPI investigator to go out with division. Well, no one ever had. So I was kind of a little bit of a pioneer here. This was the first time an MPI investigator was going to go out with division out to the National Training Center. Now, here's the problem. No one knew exactly what my job was. So my mission kind of wound up being a catch-all. What I wound up doing was investigating an awful lot of accidents. And if you want to see some horrific accidents, do it where you got high explosive uh, rounds going off, being shot from some of the most fantastic equipment in the world, and see what happens. Add to that unfamiliar terrain, things like that, and I mean, it's recipe for getting people killed. This is a story about a couple of soldiers that managed to dodge the bullet. And I'll be honest with you, they came very, very close. Okay, now what they did with me was I wound up having to stay behind at the provost marshal's office. And I got to sleep in a jail cell for the 29 days we were deployed. Well, one night I'm in there, I'm sound asleep, and the dispatcher comes back and wakes me up and says, Rich, there's been a terrible accident out on one of the ranges. What happened? A tank fired up an APC, and my, my first instance was, oh my God, this is not going to be pretty. So I got up and got dressed, and I walked over to uh, the officer's BAQ. That's where the um, division safety officers were staying. And I said, guys, we've had a bad accident on the range. We've had an M1 fire up an APC. What else do you know? That's all I know right now. We we loaded up into their um, 4x4, and we started out. And they made a few phone calls, stuff like that, so we knew where we were going. And I remember we're driving through, and it's pitch black outside. I mean, you, you have not seen pitch black until you're in the middle of the Mojave Desert. So we're driving along, and I wound up falling asleep. And Bruce and I woke up, and we're stopping. And we're stopping at what looks like a trailer house, and it's still pitch dark outside. And one of the officers got out, and he went in. He comes out, and he's got a cassette tape. And he said, you guys have got to hear this. They plugged it in. And you hear them talking and stuff like that. And this is routine stuff. You're hearing what we call a fist. A fist is a fire support vehicle. This calls in targets. In this case... This was an M1, M113 set up on a little hill there. It had a small crew, and they were calling in targets. And all of a sudden, you hear a scream. Cease fire, cease fire. My God, my God, we're hit. Cease fire. And you hear other people screaming, you know, cease fire, cease fire, cease fire. Shut it down, shut it down. Then it goes dead. 
by the time we got out to where this accident had occurred, the sun had already come up. The M1 that was responsible for firing, doing the firing is still sitting there. Sitting over on a hill, maybe about 500 yards away, is the fist. Now, the first thing we got to determine is what happened here. And we're talking to a major who was in charge of all this. And he's telling us what had happened was they were doing a live fire. Now, the way they did this was this is a response to an attack or a simulated attack by enemy armor. The way they would handle this is one tank would roll up and it would fire. It'd roll back to reload, another one would roll up, fire, and they're just alternating back and forth. Only this is, you know, dozens of tanks doing this. And they had these range safety stakes, big, long posts pounded into the ground. They do this for safety reasons. Well, I get out, and I'm looking at the tank there, and the first thing I notice is that there's a red paint transfer on the gun turret. And it became very clear what was happening here. Every time the tank moved back, the gun tube was rubbing up against the, the gun stake, the safety stake. Their field of fire was progressively getting wider and wider and wider. Now, I went around and checked some of the other stakes, and they were in very, very firm. But not this one. This one was loose. I mean, I could sit there and shake it with my hand. Like I said, its field of fire is getting progressively wider and wider. Well, eventually what happened is they, when they roll up, they got maybe two to three seconds to acquire a target and fire. Well, they get up there. Guess what's in their field of fire now? The fist. They fired at it. Now, the weapon they used was what we call a sable round. Now, sable round is kind of an interesting weapon. When this lands into a uh, target, whatever the missile's made of, the, the shell's made of, vaporizes almost instantly. The needle, which looks a little bit like a cone, melts through the armor of whatever it hit and then goes inside. I know in the Gulf War, I saw tanks that had been hit by uh, sable rounds. On the outside, they, they don't look too bad. Look down the hatch. That's what they'd hit this tank with, this little APC. And the APC is, I mean, it's nothing like a tank. It's a very lightly armored vehicle. So we went through all that, and, you know, we know what's going on here now. Now we went over and checked out the APC. It surprised me at the amount of damage to it. The round had come in low. By that, what I mean, it went in between the uh, tracks and into the engine compartment down underneath. If it had hit the APC square on, there had been no survivors on this thing. I mean, it was just boom. As it was, the entire top of the APC itself was melted off. And there was a machine gun, an M60 machine gun sitting on the uh, machine gun mount. This thing was actually melted and it was bowed down in half. Okay, now I had to go back back to base and uh, we kind of have a division of labor now. What the safety officer would do, they would go talk to the crew and the commanders and everybody else that was associated with this. I would go to the hospital and talk to the crew of the APC. And this is where I got the rest of the story. Now, when I went in there and I told them what I was there for, they were nice enough to put the crew in the, in the same room. And these guys were messed up. We had a young lieutenant that was in charge of it, a Sergeant E6, uh, and a couple of EMs. This is the story I got. Here they are. They're doing their thing. They're calling in, they're calling in their uh, fields of fire and stuff like that. And then the round hit. The lieutenant told me that when it hit, I mean, it actually rocked the APC and everything in the everything in the tank almost seemed to catch fire instantly, and he's screaming, the, you know, over the radio, you know, cease fire, cease fire, my God, my God, we're hit, cease fire, and he's trying to get everybody out of there. He's getting his uh, his uh, EMs out of there, and they're piling out this burning thing. And all of a sudden, he looks around and realizes he's missing a man. He didn't know where his sergeant was. He goes back into this burning tank, trying to find his sergeant. Okay, here's what had happened. A few moments before the round hit, these guys were what we call mop level four. That means you're in a chemical environment. You've got the protective mask on, everything else. Well, a couple of minutes before the round hit, they were told to stand down from mop level four, which means take off your mask. So they're taking the masks off. The sergeant had his mask in his hand and was folding it up to put it away in his uh, carrier when the round hit. He said the mask caught fire instantly. So here he is, he's on fire. What does he do? He panics. He jumps out of the tank, starts running down the hill before he remembered to stop, tuck, and roll. Lieutenant didn't know this. He went back into the tank, looking for the man before, before the heat and smoke finally forced him out of there. It's a miracle from God these guys even managed to survive. These are the kind of accidents you see happen out there sometimes. I mean, this is terrible. 
I don't know what happened to these men. I'm pretty sure uh, the lieutenant and possibly the NCO were discharged because of their injuries. So they're probably out there collecting a pension today. All I can say that was too bad because that LT was an officer was worth something. And a great job as always to Monty Montgomery for his work on the piece. And a special thanks again to Richard Munez. Richard Munez's story, Midnight at the Live Fire Exercise, here on Our American Story. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a summer night in Paris, American artist Lee Krasner is drifting off to sleep when the phone rings. On the line, news that her husband, Jackson, is dead. Jackson, as in the painter Jackson Pollock. He might, to this day, be the most mythologized figure in American art. But how much of the story that we've been told about him is just that, a myth? On Death of an Artist, season two, Krasner and Pollock, the story about how the art world changed forever, and the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting. Just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we continue with our American stories. And now we bring you the story of Allegory Handcrafted Goods, a Chicago-based pen and leather goods company. Here's the founder, Chad Schumacher, to tell us their story. One question I've heard more often than any other since starting Allegory is, well, how'd you get into that? Granted, making pens from historical woods and leather goods inlaid with ancient fabrics is certainly a strange enough idea for a company to elicit that kind of question. I usually just smile and give a few sentence answer about my dad teaching me about pens and the rest just sort of happening, but the whole story is much more, well, it's just more. In summer of 2011, my wife Jess and I were both working at a tech startup. We just announced that we expected our first child, and at the time we were both driving luxury cars, living in the stereotypical suburban dream house. The starter home we lived in when we got married made a nice rental property that usually paid its own bills. We didn't have huge salaries or savings, but we had stock in a company we were helping build that we hoped would be worth millions relatively soon. We had some credit card debt from our efforts to keep up with our business peers in more traditional companies, but all in all, we had life by the tail. My parents were retired and had gotten back together after a divorce, and they were excited to become full-time babysitters to their first grandchild. What happened over the rest of that year would dismantle all of those things, and it would teach me that sometimes things have to fall apart before they can really come together. The company Jess and I worked at had been sort of a proving ground for me. I dabbled in various forms of garage entrepreneurship and freelancing after college, but this company had real investors and a chance for me to apply myself to a larger, more established industry. I started as essentially a graphic designer, but I was the only marketing staff, so I wore lots of hats. And Eventually, my work expanded into both marketing and business development, and that's when I really learned how the sausage was made. Between the inside look I got into some big name client and partner organizations and the day-to-day dance of the inside of a startup, I can't imagine any opportunity creating more learning and growth in a few short years. The first crack started to show and that company began to feel pressure of getting to the end of its financial runway. Any mistakes started to seem bigger. Trying to hold the team together and manage a high-profile deal pipeline and raise capital to bridge the gap proved to be a pretty impossible task. I don't remember if it was just before or just after the birth of our son Liam when our last paychecks came, but I know that for the first few months of his life, myself and a handful of others worked without pay so that what money was left would let us fulfill our obligations to our clients. I remember setting my alarm for 5 a.m. every morning so that I could make sure that our servers were up and notify our tech contractors of any issues before our East Coast clients felt them. After Liam was down for the night, the evenings were spent on the back porch of that suburban dream house with my wife. We lived on the far edge of the Chicago metro area, where skyscrapers give way to subdivisions, and subdivisions eventually give way to cornfields. We looked out over the fields, watching planes on their way to and from Chicago's airports, and we talked about our future, and Liam's. Around this time, my father had taken up woodworking in his retirement. He and another friend who had bonded around their time in Vietnam would make pens together. He made me one and I really liked it, so he'd been bugging me to come down to his place and make some with him. Between a new baby and the upheaval in our work life, that got put off for weeks. And then one Saturday morning, my phone rang. It was my mom. She told me something was wrong with dad and she needed me to come down. I texted the folks at work to cover for me and Jess kept an eye on Liam and down I went. When I got there, I could tell right away that dad wasn't himself, he was distant. His memory seemed to have just vanished. Mom told me he had a headache all morning and then he got sick to his stomach. And when he sat back down, he looked at her and asked her how he'd gotten there. Something had happened that was bigger than nausea and he couldn't remember much of anything. So at this point, we're terrified it's a stroke and we rush him to the hospital. On the ride there, I keep asking questions to see what dad did and didn't remember. I wanted to give the doctors as much information as possible I don't know much about neurology, but I know different regions of the brain have different jobs, so maybe some little detail could help them work fast. They ruled out the stroke relatively quickly and told us he had something called transient global amnesia. The doctor tells us there's no guarantees with the brain, but that most patients recover, and that he had no idea how long it would take. And after some attempts to reassure us without giving false hope, he left. Mom and I sat with Dad. I updated family. 
Dad remembered he had a grandson, but it seemed like other than that, most of the last few decades had been wiped clean. Only the most important memories, names, and faces remained. I remember considering the possibility that he was one who wouldn't recover, and that this was his new normal. My father was in his 60s, but he'd never shown his age. He'd grown up a farm boy and served in the military. He was the kind of strong that could sneak up on you. Not long before this, he had helped me and some friends dig a huge trench on our rental property to do some work on our foundation. Four or five of us dug by hand for three days because bigger equipment couldn't reach the spot. All of my friends were in their late 20s, and some of them knew their way around a shovel, and he moved more dirt than any two of us. But he couldn't remember any of that right now. After a few hours, his brain started to dig memories back up. It seemed to start in the past and work its way forward. I watched his brain rebuild itself, and I watched him relive much of his life as it came back to him, answering his various questions to help him piece his reality back together. I remember as he was starting to get into the current decade, he asked about his sister, who had died a few years previous. What about Donna? What's she up to? He knew there was something important there, but he didn't know what. And Mom and I looked at each other, and she hesitated, so I told him his sister had passed away. For 15 or 20 seconds, he mourned her all over again as he absorbed the news before drifting back into the fog to rebuild some more. I broke the news to him about Donna three times before it stuck. As the evening hours came, Dad started to be more like himself. His doctors were less cagey now. Having seen his progress, they assured me it was likely to continue until he recovered, and that his hospital stay was unlikely to last more than a couple days. I dropped Mom off, I went home, and I got some rest, and sure enough, after a couple days, I picked my dad up from the hospital, his old self, only missing a few hours of memories of the morning before his episode. And when we pulled into his driveway, he said, Okay, let's go make that pen we've been talking about. <laughs> so we did. He showed me all the wood chunks he'd prepared for pen making and the different types of hardware. The woods had names I'd never heard and came in colors and textures I'd never seen. And the hardware reminded me of some of my favorite pens. Dad's favorite part about the pens was the way people responded to receiving one. So he'd often say, now, if you give somebody one of those, oh... I picked out all the parts of my first pen and I started to work on the lathe. I was less concerned with the finished product and more concerned with what kind of techniques were possible with the chisel. So I still have that pen, but it's pretty ugly. And you're listening to Chad Schumacher tell the story of how his company, Allegory Handcrafted Goods, came to be. And there are so many reasons why people start businesses. So many reasons why people do the things they do that have nothing to do with the obvious and yet have something to do with profound shifts in their family life and in their personal life. And you can hear it in Chad's voice, something deep and profound happened to him. And he just had to be there. By the way, if you have stories like this, and I'm sure you do, just listening, you're nodding your head. And it's good and it's okay to say, hey, that sounds like the dream but I got some reality in front of me that's better than the dream, and it's more important than the dream. If you've got a story like that, send it to OurAmericanStories.com. I know there are tons of them out there. Feel free to share them. When we come back, more of Chad Schumacher's story, his family's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. 
When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a summer night in Paris, American artist Lee Krasner is drifting off to sleep when the phone rings. On the line, news that her husband, Jackson, is dead. Jackson, as in the painter Jackson Pollock. He might, to this day, be the most mythologized figure in American art. But how much of the story that we've been told about him is just that, a myth? On Death of an Artist, season two, Krasner and Pollock, the story about how the art world changed forever. And the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting. Just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of Allegory Handcrafted Goods. After his father had a health scare, Chad Schumacher decided to take him up on the offer to make a wooden pen in his garage wood shop. Let's pick up where we last left off. That night, I dove into research of what I thought might be a new hobby for me and my dad, but as I looked at the hundreds of types of hardware available and their pricing, I couldn't help but imagine a business around making these pens. One that didn't include servers and seven-figure monthly retainers or investors or any of the things that were currently involved in my work life. And then I started looking into woods and I found one called Ancient Cowrie. It was 50,000 years old from a tree that had been part of a forest that was buried underground in New Zealand for all that time. It's one thing when you use fancy wood, 
but it's a whole other thing if that wood has a story, especially one that spans millennia. I felt like there was an opportunity to make products that really meant something, more than just a list of features and a price tag. I wondered if there were other reclaimed woods out there with interesting stories, and before long I had a whole list. Redwood from decommissioned pickling vats, cypress from the bottom of the Mississippi River, even a board that one vendor had in their back room that had been part of the Cuban Revolution. From there, it became about what the brand might be. How could we take the raw materials available to hobbyists and make sure it all felt like a real product and company? And I'd heard about this new website, Kickstarter, that created something called crowdfunding. Crazy folks like me could post their product idea and people would buy the product while it was still an idea, giving you the funding to make it a reality. On one of those back porch nights with Jess, I presented my idea as the airliners crossed in front of the sunset over the cornfields. I could say that the most important moment for Allegory was our Kickstarter launch day, when complete strangers bought $7,000 worth of pens. Or maybe the moment when I settled on the name with two of my closest friends in an evening drive on the north side of Chicago, our old stomping grounds. But that wouldn't have been enough to see Allegory through some of the trials that it's faced. When I realized a year or so in that I had started a company that probably needed around 200000 in funding to do correctly, and all I had was my dad's bandsaw and maxed out credit cards, I would have given up if that's all there was to it. Entrepreneurs talk about bootstrap funding, starting a company without outside money. In our case, that just meant that we were willing to make up for not raising money by skipping paychecks and solving problems ourselves instead of outsourcing to someone who already knew what they were doing. Boy, howdy, did I underestimate the amount of figuring out we had ahead of us. We started Allegory in my dad's garage. Within a couple months, we moved it to ours to save on commute time. And about a year in, we found a great deal on some unused space in the upstairs of a friend's business. This was going pretty well. We had some customers, some employees, and some revenue. It was starting to look like a business. And then we got the notice that we'd missed all the mortgage payments our bank was going to allow. It was time to foreclose on that suburban dream house, sell my car, and move both our family and Allegory back into that little starter home we got married in, cramming Allegory into the basement we had finished after digging the trench with Dad. Allegory went through two other resets like that in the last nine years, times when no amount of sweat or creativity was enough to cover the costs of creating a manufacturing company with an e-commerce business model out of thin air. In both cases, we had to lay off most or all of our team and go back to just Jess and I. Toss in raising Liam and having our second son, Griffin, in the same time frame, and it becomes clear pretty quickly that something else was keeping us on this path. And all that time ago, on the back porch, my wife, who is wise in ways I can't express, had it all figured out. After I walked her through my little pitch that day, she said to me, you know, with the things going on in our life right now, Liam, our jobs, the way our future is being changed so much, and then getting the first glimpse of your dad getting older, they're really going to need a lot of help in the next few years. And now you're finding this pen business through him. This all seems like God is up to something. And that was it. We were doing it. I had a job offer, but that wasn't much of a consideration. And that understanding that allegory was a journey we were meant to be on is what kept us in the game through all of those challenges. Because years ago on my back porch, my wife had the wisdom to know that God was at work. So fast forward to 2020. Allegories had a pretty solid year in 2019. We were starting to feel like we'd recovered from the most recent reset. We'd put away enough money to start planning more than two months ahead, which only helped us save more. And we'd finally pulled together the technology and know-how to scale our digital marketing efforts after lots of trial and expensive error. We'd gotten pretty good at making our products and teaching others how to do it too. We had even recently moved out of that little starter home and found a place with a 14-car garage that Dad and I converted into the perfect space for Allegory. And we just finished moving Mom and Dad into the same neighborhood in a house that was perfect for them to retire in. We felt ready for some big growth, and it would come, but not yet. One day in January, Jess was taking mom to a doctor's appointment, and dad had one at the same time. Jess called me as dad and I were on our way home and said, we're going to need to talk. Let's meet back at our house. And I said, yeah, we've got stuff to talk about too. Mom had been struggling with her memory, and that day she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And dad's heart murmur had grown into full-blown valve failure. He would need open-heart surgery. 
We were able to look them both in the eye and know we had the freedom to be there for them through what promised to be a tough year. And then we started hearing reports about COVID-19. Dad's surgery was delayed and then eventually put back on the schedule because it couldn't wait. He would spend two weeks in the ICU afterward, but the risk of his current heart valve failing was deemed greater than his risk of dying of COVID. His surgery went well. His new heart valve gave him a good prognosis, but when he woke up, something was off. He had something called post-op delirium. And this time he wasn't himself. It wasn't just his memory. It was all higher level brain function that was missing. He couldn't reason or hold conversations. And the first thing that came online for him was his fight. They were worried he would hurt himself or someone else. So the hospital decided our best bet to keep him calm and alive was for me to come in. When I got the call, they were able to waive COVID visitor restrictions. I was in the car in minutes. And when I walked into the ICU, dad was surrounded by security guards who were likely just about to try to restrain him because he had just swung his walker wildly at some of the staff. Dad might be a bit older, but he's still over six feet tall and very strong. The chances of them getting him under control without opening his chest back up didn't look good. Fortunately, I was able to calm dad back down. We went back to his room and we waited for his brain to rebuild. This time it took two weeks. Jess made a camp-style bed for me in our van because the idea of staying in a hotel near the hospital seemed too risky during COVID, and we lived 45 minutes from the VA hospital he was being treated in, and 45 minutes might have been too long if his confusion led to another moment of rage. Dad was still a little foggy when we brought him home, but over the next few months, both his body and his brain righted themselves. We rolled out the growth plans we had for Allegory once Dad started feeling better, and they worked. We're only halfway through those plans now, and we're already on track to double our best year ever. It won't always be an easy road, though. We were reminded of that in January, when we were in the middle of a record-breaking month, and my phone rang again. This time it was Dad, worried about Mom. Since we'd moved them into our neighborhood, I was able to pick her up and get her to the ER in minutes. And as a result, a major stroke that would have almost certainly been fatal turned out to only have minor long-term symptoms. In a way, the parts of her brain she lost were the ones stressing her out, and while she needs a little more help now, she's happier and more connected with all of us. So I know this story was supposed to be about starting a business, and we spent all kinds of time talking about just about everything else. But here's the thing. That job offer I turned down when I started Allegory, it was out of state. I wouldn't have been able to look my parents in the eye and promise to be there for them. I wouldn't even have been able to take them both to the doctor that day, and I don't have any brothers or sisters. I wouldn't have been there to help them find a home to retire in 40 minutes closer to the hospital and three minutes from my house. I wouldn't have been able to rush in to be with dad at the ICU to help him stay calm long enough for his brain to come back. I wouldn't have been able to rush mom into the ER for life-saving stroke treatment. That little baby who was sleeping in the other room while we talked about pens on the back porch would have lost his grandparents way too soon. And yeah, it was hard. Lots of sacrifices were made compared to if we'd pursued more traditional work. But we've proved a few times now that finances can be rebuilt and people can't. So if you're feeling like you're being pulled into something big and you're not sure if you should go through with it, I can tell you three things. You're probably underestimating how hard it is. You're probably also underestimating yourself. And it's probably worth it in ways that you can't possibly predict. And what a beautiful piece of storytelling. Great work on the production by Robbie. And a special thanks to Chad Schumacher. What a story and what a piece of storytelling. And uh, that's why we do this show, folks. It reminds us all of the stakes on the table in our own lives and how we can elegantly and beautifully live them and still live your dream. But it's just a different dream now. It's just a different dream. And in the end, I'm sure the Shoemakers would say... A much better dream than that one in that high-tech startup in downtown Chicago. Chad Schumacher's story, a family story like few we've told, a beauty, a real beauty here on Our American Stories. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may know Jackson Pollock, the painter famous for his iconic drip paintings. But what do you know about his wife, artist Lee Krasner? On Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting, just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.